Hello, this is Josie Robbins' Book Shambles. This is a slightly edited form. If you'd like to hear the full version of Josie and Robbins' Book Shambles, then you just go to patreon.com slash bookshambles, and then from then on there will be all manner of extra... Hello, welcome to Book Shambles, producer Trent here. Now, let's be honest, we know it has been quite a while since we put out a podcast episode of Book Shambles. Uh, as you will know if you've been following Shambles or Robin or Josie on any social media, Josie has been off on maternity leave with her second child and now she's on a tour out, out in Australia at the moment. Robin's been on a world tour with Brian Cox and a tour uh, across libraries and bookshops in the UK. We've been with Robin uh, on a lot of that tour as well as finishing uh, Rapid Motion Through Space, our first feature documentary, which you can watch online now at cosmicshambles.com slash rapidmotion. So basically a lot's been going on. So we just haven't had a gap in the schedule where all three of us are available, basically. Uh, so what we're going to be doing throughout this year is just whenever we find a gap in the schedule, uh, we're just going to record uh, some episodes and then put them out as and when. So it won't be a regular uh, weekly podcast as it has been in years past, but we still will be putting out Book Shambles episodes and there will still be extended editions for Patreon supporters as well. So on today's episode, which we recorded a couple of weeks ago, we are talking to the author, Lucy Nicholl. Hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles. This is the first Book Shambles of 2023, and that gives us a special extra treat that Josie and Robin's Book Shambles today actually includes both Josie and Robin, which has been Hello. a rarity in 2022. How are it, you? It's been a long time. Well, I'm very excited for the new year to unfurl like a like a, a, a gigantic water lily in front of me. I'm very excited. I, I am my little baby. Um, we were assuming that we wouldn't have childcare for her until the end of the year because it just takes a long time and there aren't many spaces. And then we got a letter at the very end of the year received on the 30th of December saying your baby has childcare for two days a week. And it was like a Christmas miracle. But it was one of those things as well where it was dated the 14th and it said, please reply within two weeks. And we got it after two weeks. And we were like, oh, no, we've lost the chance. And so then I was ringing every day and they were like, yeah, fine. Um, <clears throat> so I, I feel like it's the end of an era for me. I'm coming out of the era of maternity, which feels very sad, but also... Well, that, well that's the perpetual thing of parenthood, isn't it? That, that yeah. it, It's a constant end of different eras and a fear that the next era will be not as much fun uh, or whatever it might be. Um, oh, the moment you said the water lily, I think it says a lot about me that the lily I saw that I would get would be that one they've got in Kew Gardens that once a year stinks of, like, rotting flesh. So yeah, I'd be watching the, the unfurling like. and then I'd go... Oh no, it's the smelly <laughs> flesh unfurling. Uh, anyway, we are, uh, as you can see by the kind of nature of our conversation, we are, uh, even though I'm too old to be the snowflake generation, I feel that nevertheless <laughs> I have that doubt. Yeah, I'm very proud of you. You're not as cynical as your generation mates, and you must feel very lonely. You've not got that sarcastic, ironic edge anymore, Robin. 
Do you know what? That I was talking about that with my mate Gavin Webster, the great comedian. We were saying, isn't it weird? The more you get into middle age, the more you go, oh, well, they're gone. Well, they're gone. Oh, well, they're people who are basically saying it's political correctness gone mad, but disguised it in another frame of reference. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what we're going to talk about because we're joined by Lucy Nichol, who has just read uh, Lucy's new book is called Snowflake. And uh, it is uh, fantastic. And it is filled with, it's one of the things that I, I love about books is, is uh, a book that is not merely just well written, but it, it feels so tremendously useful when you hold it in your hand as well but before we get to not just holding it in your hand you can't just feel it's useful by holding it in your hand you also have to open it and look at the words that are within sorry if i gave and that's the shame about books i find yeah, I. That's why I'm surrounded by them. I imagine somehow <laughs> they'll go into it. Lucy, before we get onto your book, what was your favourite book of uh, 2022? Well, I mean, if, can I cheat and have two? Can I have a yeah. Yeah. non-fiction? Um, so fiction. It was the Familiars by Stacey Halls, which had um, we're talking about young uh, protagonists. This had a 17-year-old Fleetwood Shuttleworth who was pregnant for the fourth time. And it's a it's an exploration of um, so in sixteen twelve an exploration of witchcraft and it's got quite a feminist sort of punch to it and how they're fighting against the the witchcraft trials that they they become immersed in so I found that oh. absolutely fascinating and they and the atmosphere I mean the book opens and you're straight in a forest which was just brilliant so. <laughs> Um, I think that one, that one, it just, it was one of those where, you know, you can't wait to go to bed and get back into it and get reading it. And then the nonfiction one was White Women by um, Syrah Rowe and Regina Jackson. And so I don't know if you've heard about these guys. They are behind the documentary um, Deconstructing Karen, um, which was which is absolutely fascinating. But it's basically, the line on the front is, everything you already know about your own racism and how to do better. And it's one of those books that you read it and it makes you very uncomfortable, but you finish it and you actually feel liberated because it's almost like, it's almost like giving you permission to go, yeah, I get it wrong a lot, but I've learned a hell of a lot and I am going to do better. So yeah, that 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 had a profound effect on me, I'd say. Well, that's that something so you good. talk about in uh, in, in Sofa, which I think is a major part of, of where you, you talk about the time where you used in an article the word addict and you were picked up and people felt and and you talk about the fact that you immediately your first reaction is to have umbrage I'm just trying to help and I remember that mm. I remember once saying on stage during a routine I said gay marriage as opposed to same-sex marriage and someone came up to me afterwards very politely and said oh by the way it would be better if you said same-sex marriage and again my initial reaction was oh I'm just trying to help and I'm trying to be and yeah. then the case is can you get beyond the the umbrage and actually, because it feels to me that so many people who throw out the word snowflake, what they're really doing is just protecting themselves, bolstering the status quo and refusing in any way to engage with something which might mean that they have to attack their own opinions. I think it's it's really uncomfortable, isn't it? And when that first, um, because the article that I use the word addict um it was about stigma it was about addiction Mm -hmm. stigma and so when someone came back to me and said um they had a few issues with the article it wasn't just that I'd use the word addict they also didn't like the kind of what we might call the medicalized model of addiction I talked about addiction as a disease and I probably still would describe it in that way so I think on the one hand when people 
challenge you. Sometimes there's no right or wrong answer. It's what you believe. I believe that addiction is a disease. But the point that this guy had about me using the word addict, at first I could feel the kind of attention. I felt a bit sick. I was like, oh, I'm so angry. I've tried to do this really great thing. And all you're doing is coming back to me and picking out something that, you know, you find problematic. And you have to sort of sit with that and be a bit uncomfortable. And at first, that time, which was a few years ago, I did kind of respond and say, but, you know, this is a piece about stigma, this da-da-da-da-da, you know, it's trying to do good. And then I kind of backtracked a bit and had to say, actually, this guy was right. Who am I to call somebody else an addict? Who am I to determine somebody by a health problem that they have? And... I did, I did use it because I had been chairing a, um, a small local addiction recovery charity called Road to Recovery Trust and in 12-step recovery, so AA, etc. Um, a lot of people that I was interacting with described themselves as addicts. But that's okay because they are choosing to use mm. that to describe themselves in that context. And I realized it probably isn't really up to me to to define somebody in that way. So, yeah, I think that I think that's the point. That was only a few years ago. I've got examples of stigma that I used when I was 14 years old, you know, back in the 90s when we didn't know much better. Um, but I will still get things wrong and I have to accept that and learn from it instead of getting all angry and up for a fight about it. <laughs> But that's part of um, hoping to sort of <clears throat> have a progressive attitude and like a forward thinking attitude, isn't it? Knowing that in 10 years, we'll look at certain things that are common practice now and need to change them and need to accept that we were part of a culture now that, you know, will change and that will sort of not be necessarily something we're able to kind of keep hold of or want to keep hold of and that kind of thing. Like, I think that is part of sort of the uncomfortable nature of like trying and and like you were saying like this idea that kind of trying isn't about ever pretending that you were ever perfect or that you ever would be and i and think I that kind of gives you that freedom and liberation if you can say that if you can put your hands up and say i'm not perfect mm. i never will be perfect i never have been but i will keep trying to do my best but that idea of, you know, trying to hold on to something, things do progress. And, you know, nobody is, nobody wants an iPhone 5. Do they want an iPhone? I don't even know what we're on now. You know, so why is it with words that we have become so precious about old versions of them? Why do they mean so much to us that we're so desperate to cling on to them, that we're ready to have a massive internet war, you know, a massive mm. Twitter fight over it? It just well, it feels it, ridiculous. To me, it's all links in with the same thing, which is about how humane we are or aren't. You know, mm. if, if we're able to kind of um, listen to other people as opposed to sort of prescribing onto them, uh, not you know that's that's the key to it isn't it and and that's where it comes from you know so often when somebody wants to cling to a word where people are saying this word is not helpful to me in my life this word has bad effects in my life you know it, it's about sort of not wanting to just extend your um extend your time and energy to accepting that person's kind of point of view over your own preconceived ideas and stuff and i feel like that links into a lot of kind of 
how to be more humane with regards to things like mental health as well. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, it's like with the book, I, I try to make very clear it's not about a book of rules. It's not mm. it's not saying to someone, you cannot say that, you you should never say that again. It's about saying, you know, you, you've just explained this in this way or use this term. This is how it has the potential to make somebody feel. So maybe reconsider it. And like you say, it's about yeah, being human and just compassionate and thinking mm. about other people um and sometimes i think if we have that initial response of i'm being told what to do that overrides everything mm. and you know we we lose sight i think of that compassion and that humanity which is more important than any of that nonsense so yeah and also i think, I think comes easier to people really if they yeah. let their guard down because actually you know what we want to do is relate to each other as individuals we don't actually want to sort of try to cling on to something that's not real life yeah, yeah. <laughs> absolutely well i do think that when you were talking about words because you, you in, in one of the chapters you talk about that kind of that idea of uh, sticks and stones may break your bones but they will eventually heal and though you might occasionally have a nagging you know sensation in your elbow whatever it might be it heal but words them I, I remember i think it was john ronson talking about bullying once where he said that of course many people just grow up and they might have been the school bully and we might all be you know probably all of us are guilty at some point of in some ways you know a little bit of bullying but that for a lot of them, they then just forget it and they become perfectly normal adults and they don't realise that some of those people that were, were bullied, especially though bullied relentlessly, that damage may well remain with them for the rest of their life. Mm. And that sense that the words have a longevity to them, which sometimes, you know, a, a, a broken arm doesn't necessarily. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I've I've been subject to workplace bullying on two occasions in the past um the second time being absolutely horrific and I think that it does stay with you and um, you know I'm still angry I'm still it's, it it probably propels a lot of my campaigning work because I've got a personal kind of response to it and it does still hurt and it may, it does still make you feel ashamed even you know when you when you get it out there so it, it does have such a long lasting effect. But when you look at, because this is something I found interesting on, on Twitter recently, you know, um, a lot of people saying, well, show me a time when whoever has been transphobic or racist or, you know, and it's not just about, I think with bullying, it's not just about how one tweet or one word is used that is so explicit. It's about the context of that, it's about who the person is, what platform they have, um, what they're encouraging from followers, um, whether or not they challenge any bad behaviour from followers, and a kind of relentlessness and consistency in in the beliefs or attitudes that they're putting forward. So I think that with words as well, it's not just and. And in the chapter that you're talking about, I actually, my um, good friend, Dr. Kalachukwu Ayhimir, um, he's a, a senior lecturer in linguistics. And um, he, he talks about that. He talks about how, you know, you can, you can put something out there and it will stay for a long, a long time. Um, particularly now we've got social media. So it might just feel like a little throwaway comment, but the impact that it can have is absolutely well, it's just huge. It's just huge and long lasting. 
Well, I always return to Barry Crimmins, who is someone, as you know, Josie, I want to make sure people know and remember uh, mm -hmm. Barry, who was a great activist and comedian. And I remember him saying to me, you always have to remember that words are shrapnel. And it didn't mean that he shied away from actually some of the biggest topics, real big topics, you know, proper attacking governments and, and churches and all that kind of thing, mm -hmm. uh, things that really mattered. But I, And I was thinking, Josie, I remember talking to you a few years ago. We, we were sitting in a cafe and, and you said, looking back, you now realise that so you because you've had a, a lot of attacks on you know ridiculous amount, mm. um, and you said that looking back you think that perhaps that did affect a period of time in your career where just knowing all of those angry voices were out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean definitely, I, I, and also then I think maybe it's partly due to being neurodivergent, and I think like thing words kind of can haunt you and stick in your head if i don't know if that's a neurotypical thing or not i i because i just always assumed i was neurotypical because i didn't know but like for me like things can just stay and i can't get rid of them they're just there in my consciousness and my brain will make that connection over and over again um yeah i think for me like when i found out there was a lot of stuff online about me at various different points which i'm sure there will be more as well it, it was always hard because you sort of imagine those are the people at your show, even though they absolutely aren't, you know, imagine those are the people responding to everything you do. And so you can sort of see, I suppose what was interesting as well, when we were talking about childhood bullying, and then you were talking about workplace bullying. And I suppose the hard thing is to think about this fact that through our lives, you know, there's always going to be causes of harm and ways that some people will be setting out to damage mental health, even as fully grown adults, you know, even even when lots of well perhaps all of us are like trying to get better even then there's still going to be that and i suppose i don't know i feel like that's worth talking about well that's why i think that the uh some, you know when someone comes up to you and compliments you and they said oh god i don't want to look i'm sucking up or blah 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 uh what i would say to everyone is you know when you love someone's work or them or them or anything they've done for you is don't feel sh because we're so it's so easy to spread anger and hate yeah. and far less embarrassing apparently than spreading love but it's like the thing i always go back to is when you first started going out with someone you would have made a playlist or a cassette or whatever of bands that you loved that you wanted them to love too you mm. didn't make a cassette of these are the bands that i hate and i mm. hope you hate them too so i think you know that that can be such an important part of it as well it's it's not merely dealing with the people who are spreading the hatred but you know i know how many people love your work and i've seen comments about some of the things that you've done lucy as well and i know how important that and sometimes that i think the 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 pressure of 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 the hate can feel so much greater than actually the the amount of of worth that you're giving to people and the amount of empowerment you're giving to people and i think that's just such a an, an important thing and the permission you're, you're giving to people um the so it's very embarrassing i've been overly positive uh the um but i wanted to lucy in terms of why was it now why did you want to write snowflake because you've written two novels which have dealt with different ideas of of, of of dealing with 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 mental health and with addiction and lots of other so so why why did you want to write uh, a non-fiction book and, and and why snowflake so to be completely upfront um i i actually i started blogging um about mental health back in 2016 and i think because i worked in media and marketing um i was very interested in stigma because of how things are portrayed in the media because that's always been professionally what I 
kind of look at um and and then obviously experiencing an anxiety disorder and experiencing stigma throughout my life and using stigma as i said myself um so i've always been interested in that and then 2016 i was blogging quite a bit and then it turned into a book so my first book um, which came out in 2018 was kind of memoiry, kind of comment, kind of nostalgic rant. <laughs> it was it was a, a mix of everything. Um, and then I wrote the two novels, and in that period of time, I just felt like I'd learned so much that I wanted to revisit um, writing about stigma with kind of my 44 year old head on <laughs> as mm. opposed to whatever I was 40 oh yeah I will, will have been 40 when I first wrote that um so I yeah I wanted to relook at it and I also wanted to take a different point of view because I think when I first wrote that book um series of unfortunate stereotypes it was called it was as I say it was mainly memoir and I felt like I didn't have the authority or the right the right to um comment on anything to do with mental health that I didn't have personal experience of. And as time went by, I realized actually, as long as I get the right voices within this, as long as I speak to the right people, and that's experts by both experience and profession, mm -hmm. then of course I can explore because I'm learning as I'm writing the book. I'm not writing this book saying I am an expert in all of these conditions that we, <clears throat> that we cover and all of the stereotypes but I'm speaking to the right people and being able to create a book that I think is more rounded. So that's kind of where it came from, writing those those novels and then just wanting to head back into nonfiction a little bit. And yeah, you, you know, you, you spend a lot of time on, on Twitter and it feels like, it feels like a kind of a fruitless fight, doesn't it? You know, it's what, how it feels on Twitter all the time. And I just but Twitter's I such a base level of um, yeah. communication in so many ways, and it's so like fraudulent. Like the things you read, where you're like, "But this is just nothing to do with anything factual." It's just people just saying any old shit. So you have to sort of go, right, we'll just get back from that. I was going to say, I think, yeah, the amount of people you spoke to in your book is really exciting. Like you did speak to so many different like experts, as you say, and like I think there's something about the reading a book that is a journey for the author too that's so good as a layman because you don't feel like you're ever being spoken down to you feel like you're part of that discovery I think um, yeah I think that is really important and I think that I will no doubt get because I think anyone who writes non-fiction always gets but you know who are you to be commenting on this? There will always be somebody who has an opinion that is different to mine and they mm. will try to out me as not being expert enough to write it. But I think I'm very upfront in what my position is, what my passion is, and I'm very confident that I've got I've got the right voices and the right expertise around me to write that book. Um, but I think you you are always told, you know, I've I've I, I was advertising the book on, on Facebook recently in some of the comments I got. I just put a Facebook um, post out about what the book is about. And I got a lot of abuse about um, the word gammon being racist and Meghan Markle <laughs> playing the victim. And I'm like, nobody's oh, for God's mentioned sake. gammon and nobody's mentioned Meghan Markle. Where also, these guys don't sound like a good target crowd. These guys don't sound like...
But it's not even necessarily people, is it? Like so much of it, there's a lot of money to create a media ecosystem, which itself is like contrarian and cruel, you know, and and within that there's people sorry to interrupt Robin but within that they you know a lot of the responses you're going to get are not even going to be a person's account are they they're going to be sort of paid for or constructed yeah. accounts I think what what you were saying as well about that kind of assured voice coming back at you it, it really can it's it does me I mean my self-confidence mm. Sometimes it's really good and sometimes it's, yeah, I, I am full of self-doubt. I have an anxiety disorder, which doesn't help. Mm. Um, but I think sometimes I have to look at the context and sometimes I have to give myself more credit because I wrote a piece recently for Stylist magazine and the response, quite frankly, was was hilarious because, and, and, and this is a very negative response by a psychologist, a male psychologist. So, you know, obviously very well trained in, the area of, of mental health studied no doubt a lot more than I have um, but I wrote this article about how women are often um, dismissed as being neurotic when mm. they have an anxiety disorder and what was really funny was that a lot of the things he was saying to me were trying to argue about the fact that neuroticism is probably really <laughs> the issue like the whole thing is about stigma against women who have an anxiety disorder and you are trying to tell me that as a woman I am wrong and as a man you are right and that I am neurotic end of and I just think sometimes you have to kind of take it with a pinch of salt or you have to and you have to see I think that it's just opinion I sometimes mm. do worry that because somebody said something to me and they disagree with me that there's a right and a wrong mm. And, and there really isn't, is there? You know. Well, the useful thing with psychology is to look at the 20th century and the number of times you go, oh, that person I thought was really cool, it turns out they slightly faked there. Oh, that turns out not. You know, even some of my favourite 20th century psychologists, we've moved on. There's a great film which I'd really recommend to, to anyone listening to this called The Witness, which is about, I don't you probably know Kitty Genovese, who was, oh, the, yeah. who was yeah, murdered in New York, and it led to the bystander effect, the, mm -hmm. the idea that uh, people will do nothing if there's a large enough number. Of, so lights went on in the... And it's her brother, her youngest brother, who investigates what really happened. And it turns out it's not nearly as simple as that. In fact, I will give something away here. He finds out that there was a woman with her when she was dying. And it had always, it had been turned in, you know, here was someone, he, he, it's believed the reason he volunteered to go to the Vietnam War because of the 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 feelings he had about it. He, he lost both his legs. So it's this fascinating thing. You see this guy getting in and out, you know, this guy who's carrying also the physical damage that actually happened partly. Because, and then he discovers that there was so much, so much of the story was not told. Well, also lots of people. It's easier contact. to make just one story because then you go bystander effect. And then you mm -hmm. actually go, oh, it wasn't as simple as that at all sorry Josie no 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 I I'm just being like and I'll spoiler it more because yeah people did contact the authorities it's the same I was reading somebody was talking yesterday about um Stockholm syndrome and how much that's completely based on uh a male uh psychologist refusing to listen to one of the women hostages <laughs> And refusing to accept that how she was behaving was like a survival thing. And then her refusal to play into the narrative they decided. And like, again, like a lot of this, I think, comes from patriarchy, doesn't it? It comes from the fact that we 
you know, I still feel like I grew up in a society where we were taught there was an official version of events and that that was very clear and that that was objective and that that was correct. And that actually, like, that's just sort of comforting to men of a certain class, I suppose, who managed to, like, keep writing things. Yes, it does comfort me, actually, Josie. Thank you very much. <laughs> Robin, you've committed class suicide and you know it. <laughs> the... Uh, uh... Lucy, I wanted to get uh, just a little bit as well about you, you. You mentioned in the book as well about the early stages when you when you were having to hide what you were going through. When you and now I don't know if I was going to say panic attacks, but I hate that word because I think it that, that, that phrase rather because I think it immediately makes it sound like it's something. You know, oh, because we think of dad's army or whatever panic mm. somehow feels. But you you would have you know experience of extreme anxiety you know on, on public transport. And when did you start to notice and think this is not the way things should be? Um, well, I think when the first one hit me, it hit me hard and knocked me on the floor. So I think I realised straight away that there was something very wrong. I think the problem with health anxiety, and I don't like the word hypochondriac because it's used so often with just a, in front of it, just a hypochondriac, because it infers that there's nothing wrong with you. And I think with health anxiety and like we're saying about panic attacks, there is something very wrong. It's just usually or often not the thing you think it is. So I had a massive panic attack when I was, I think, 15 years old. Um, it was in the 90s. There was the pill scare. You remember there was uh, yeah. talk about femidine and blood clots. And, and I didn't even connect that I had health anxiety. I didn't because we didn't talk about this stuff. Probably never used the word anxiety even back then. I just did not talk about this stuff. And, um, but I was going through, you know, I was growing up, I was becoming an adult. I was sleeping at my boyfriend's, I was smoking cigarettes, I was taking the pill, I was doing all these things. So obviously there's probably some kind of guilt and shame and something in my head and growing up and all that fear that was probably playing into the anxiety, but kind of underlying that, was the impact of um, health anxiety and what I was consuming in, in the media. And I had this tiny little mark on my arm, which, you know, I'm, I'm not a doctor, but I don't think blood clots look like that. <laughs> I don't mm. think you can look at yourself and go, oh, I've got a blood clot. But I had this tiny little mark on my arm and literally within a split second, I thought I had DVT. Oof. And then this, kind of thing came over me and I didn't have a mobile phone of course then and I was at my ex-boyfriend's bed sit there was no phone so I had to go out to the pay phone and um because I wanted to ring my mum because I was still 15 and I wanted my mum and um and I started I just my all these physical things started happening so I went like my vision went Mm. I went really faint at one point I was kind of on the floor on this really busy street in Hull like Prince's Ave in Hull which is a really busy road and I was on the floor crawling along and when I finally got into the phone box I remember my mum talking me through why a mark on my arm wasn't a blood clot and she was she was great because she was being really rational and logical and talking me through um, and I remember feeling this flood of relief, but it took my body a while to catch up. Mm -hmm. So all of the physical effects of the panic attack were still happening. And 
I was still wobbly, I was still retching, still couldn't see very well. So I knew straight away that there was something not right. And, you know, the next time it happened, I thought I had found a lump. I got out the bats, I went faint. Um, I kept feeling around my neck. I became, from that point on, I just became really obsessed with checking and not Googling, so we couldn't then, thank God, but um, checking things and seeing the doctor about things. And, and it would always be accompanied by this going faint, feeling sick and this overwhelming fear, like, well, like terror, like absolute terror that I was gonna die. Um, and it just, I didn't go to the doctors for ages because I just really didn't know how to articulate what was happening because I could say, well, I think I've got a DVT or I think I've got cancer or I think I've got a heart problem. I didn't know how to say, I think I've got an anxiety disorder. But it got to the point where I had about a, a week constantly. I was 19, I think, by this point. So this has been going on for a good few years where I thought my throat was closing up and that was it was terrifying. And it, it, from the moment I woke up in the morning, it was all I could feel and think. And my mum tried reflexology on me and all sorts of things, but nothing could get me to calm down. And eventually I went to the doctors and just burst into tears and he got me he referred me for therapy so it's in the 90s and I got CBT um, he did offer me medication but I couldn't take them because I couldn't because of my throat mm. I couldn't take any medication because I, I was so scared of what was going on in my throat even though nothing was um, so yeah it, it because we didn't talk about it then I kind of got to not crisis point as in I wasn't at risk of suicide or anything like that at that stage but I just got to the point where I could not cope any longer and just mm. turned up at the dots and burst into tears and thankfully had a great GP and a great counsellor um, so I just feel so happier that these days we are able to more easily articulate what is going on we've got the language to do that because back then I was just lost in a kind of turmoil of all these different physical health problems that I thought were happening to me when it was it was a mental health problem. And hopefully GPs have got better at uh, because I know there's you know there's a lot of people I know have had very dismissive GPs, <laughs> and and hopefully now that we realise increasingly realising how much the mind plays its part in mm. physical sensations. It's like when you were saying that I was thinking of my history of anxiety imagination because before when I was a, a little boy I was terrified of rabies. I thought I was going to get rabies, and I talked about mm. this in a show once where at the age of ten I used to go into our little local church and see if I could kill myself by holding my breath because I was so scared about. Then there was nuclear war when I was a teenager. Oh, yeah, me too. Then yeah. late teens into your 20s, it's HIV and AIDS. Then yeah. it goes into cancer and then it goes into early onset dementia. That's quite, you know, in terms of, there's lots You've of other things. You've got something from cradle to grave. In, in each generation, you know, each year you go, oh God, I'm going to get rabies. Oh God, we're all going to die in a nuclear war. As I, I'm sure I've told you before, Josie, when mm, the, yeah. you know, being a teenager in the 80s and, and, and then at like the time in, when, I, I thought I must have AIDS because of the the sarcoma, the Carposi sarcoma, because I had these little marks on my arms, like the mark you had on on, yeah. on your arm. And what it is is, I I had stretch marks. 
but people never talk about men having stretch marks and uh, on on my upper arms just there near uh, my armpits and I was like I'd never noticed them before oh my god what are those they must be Carposi sarcoma I had a a friend who went to the doctor about some lumps that she had in her mouth (laughs) she was like me she was really really upset about them and the doctor looked and said, yes, they're your taste buds. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's all, because you the moment you notice something, you've just never noticed it before, and then you go, that was never there before. The roof of my mouth never had that bump before. Oh, my God, what's yeah. it filled with? It's yeah. Filled with mouth. <laughs> that's what it's filled with. But also um, how wide anxiety is felt, you know, and, and how, you know, like, all of us are having to, like with nuclear war, that's such a classic one, you know, that is something gigantic out of all of our control, that at that time people just had to, what, shoulder? Just had Mm. to think about that, know that, know how terrifying that was and live with it. And rather than as a society sort of trying to, you know, like it, it comes down to sort of us systemically facing things and us being more generous with one another on a singular level too. It's, yeah, oh, it's very interesting. Um, sorry, a, that's just too... I think there's a different kind of approach as well when it comes to public health campaigns, because even though public health campaigns have negatively affected my anxiety, mm. I see that they're very important. You know, I see that it, it, it was important. It is important for us to understand symptoms of cancer or meningitis or COVID oh, yeah. or, you know, whatever it is. And it's affected me badly in some ways because I have health anxiety so I need help for that health anxiety I don't it doesn't make me think that those campaigns shouldn't exist even though as somebody you know there there may be people going to the doctor saying you know I've I've got a lump or I've got this or I've got that could it be x y or z and a lot of time we're sent away reassured and that's great nobody says that there's anything wrong with that and Sue Baker, who wrote the foreword to my book, used this recently when she was talking about mental health stigma. Because a lot of people are saying now, well, we're over-medicalizing life and there's too much mental health awareness. And, you know, people are thinking they've got a mental health problem when they haven't. Well, you don't say that about a cancer public awareness campaign or you don't say that about meningitis awareness, you know. You're more grateful. And, and they always say, if there's anything that's worrying you, if there's you know, we see it on the bowel cancer adverts, changing your bowels. You've got, you know, it's probably nothing, but come along and see us anyway. Mm-hmm. So why is it different with mental health? Because surely if a young person is struggling and thinking that they might have depression and they go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, I don't think you do have depression, but you might benefit from X, Y or Z, whether that might be you know, I don't know, looking at um, what's happening in school or socialising or how you're eating or sleeping, you know, why why is that considered wrong and a waste of time? And why is it considered that someone's trying to pull the wool over your eyes or victimise themselves? We don't say that about any other physical health campaign. So I do find that really interesting. Mental health is definitely still not on a path. Well, the thing that I always go, you know, when people, they always, as you mentioned in, in, in your book as well, that that kind of, oh, they never used to have these things in the old days. And one of the things that I first of all... They did! Was, <laughs> yeah, and, and well, Patrick Stewart, 
who funds uh, the domestic abuse, a lot of the domestic abuse course in uh, Huddersfield University. And the reason he does that is because of the environment he grew up in. And that is more than likely because of the damage that occurred to his father when he was in the war. Mm -hmm. And this, this notion, you don't have to read that many biographies or autobiographies of people to see that there were mental health problems everywhere that not merely destroyed that individual, but very often destroyed families. And I totally agree that just, it's it's nonsense and it's as you said it's it's more often than not said by attention seeking people like Piers Morgan who seek attention <laughs> yeah, by yeah. as you say calling everyone else an attention seeker yes yeah that is that I mean that that's his MO isn't it? <laughs> it's fueling the machine that has to have three stories a day four times a day or whatever and they decide that that agenda is how soft everyone is and so it's just having to manufacture these things um I, I was thinking about the fact that on one hand we have dr google which is terrible for people with anxiety with health anxiety but on the other hand we have instagram which i have genuinely found like for my own like journey in terms of finding out i have adhd was like a lifeline and so often when i see on instagram there are all these mental health resources which you know obviously you have to then exercise a bit of judgment because anyone can put photos on an Instagram stream and seem like they know what they're talking about. But at the same time, it's so interesting. We're in this world where there is so much more ability now to connect with people and to understand things and to find understanding connection. And then also so much more ability to really just like go so far down the wrong rabbit hole. Um, yeah. I suppose I think it was harder and easier now. Yeah, I think, I mean, I've, you know, like I say, it was, I was 15, it was in the 90s, it was years ago when I first experienced a panic attack. And, you know, I've had lots of therapists, I've had lots of medication, I've, I've, you know, I've learned a hell of a lot about anxiety. But I still put stuff out on Twitter when I want to hear from other people who have been in, it's like reassurance seeking, which I know is kind of, that can be a negative behaviour of health anxiety, but I think when you're recognising that your problem is anxiety and you're seeking for people's experiences that are similar. So like the other day I put out that I've been really enjoying exercise recently, but I've started to get a little bit obsessed as I did when I was in my 20s about my heart. And it's mm. it's getting in the way of my exercise because I keep thinking, oh, my heart, is it is it normal? Is it irregular? Is it what's going to happen? Um can I only exercise when my husband's around in case I collapse afterwards, you know? So I put something out and people would come back and say, oh, I've experienced that. And have you tried that? And da, da, da. And, and I do find that really helpful. But I was, um, I was chatting to somebody today um, about online harm, which was really interesting. Um, Ian Russell, who um, I've been working with a charity called Beyond, a mental health charity. And Ian Russell is working with them and he very tragically lost his daughter to self-harm when she was just 14 years old, um, which was 2017, I think. And the coroner ruled that this was due to access. This was due to, you know, the, to, to self-harm and depression, but a lot was triggered by access to very harmful content. And um, we were discussing this and it because of algorithms and because of how sophisticated and complex algorithms are, and I was just learning this and chatting to him this morning, you don't have to go out there looking for harmful content. It presents itself to you. 
and the algorithm once you know if you've spent time looking at it then obviously the algorithm will just feed more and more and more of it to you until you're kind of caught in this rabbit hole of, of harm which you know it's, it's i think it's bad enough for for adults but for children and young people i think it's just absolutely terrifying mm -hmm. and that's why i'm really interested in this whole you know elon musk free speech stuff which is just an excuse for being hateful i think mm -hmm. it's just an excuse for caught in controversy and mm -hmm. you know being able to say we can say whatever we like no consequence doesn't matter in the name of free speech when we we know uh, the harm that it can cause so and it goes back to that humanity thing you were saying Josie doesn't it yeah. about you know just what, what what's wrong with thinking about mm -hmm. other people what's wrong with being compassionate it doesn't make you a weak person it makes you stronger it's well, awful. Too, on, on, a, on a positive thing, because we're nearly at the end, I, I just wanted to, that, that sense that you were talking about, Lucy, of, of uh, talking about the, of, of people feeling that they can express themselves and where it's led to, and Josie talking about, you know, ADHD, and I know that both of us have had a similar kind of path of suddenly finding me at 52, you know, why your brain to some extent behaves in the way it does and how mm. much that changes you. And I was thinking of my friend, and I, I think you, you, you're friends with her, so Laura Davis, the Australian uh, comedian, Josie. Mm. And Laura uh, had this uh, this show called Cake in the Rain, which one of the things in it was suicide ideation. She would, every 25 minutes to half an hour, think about killing herself, not out of a, a, a tremendous pool of depression. It was literally suddenly there would be this impulsive suicidal thought. Mm. And she did this stuff where she would say, for her, she's made it positive, because it means every half an hour she has to say to herself, why do you want to live? And she would come up with the three reasons. But mm. I saw her last year in Perth, and she's recently been di diagnosed with ADHD, and she's now on uh, some medication. I think there's some other things as well. And I said to her, do you still get suicide ideation? And she kind of said, no, really, even just the sense of understanding herself from the nature mm -hmm. of the ADHD brain had, was already beginning to erase something which had been dominant from, you know, teenage life, if not before. And, and I think that bit of just that's not getting in the way of anyone else. Uh, the fact that she was able to find out something about herself, express herself, and through that thing now, something which has been part of her life for so long, which she found the positive in but had many negatives, that expression has now meant that she has moved on to another place. Mm. And and I think that is, you know, that, that's one of the reasons, you know, your book I think is very powerful in, in just saying there's there's no shame in, in, in talking. And I think more often than not, many of us may have had that experience where one or other of us has suddenly just taken the risk of saying something. With you and me, Josie, it might be on mm. stage sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Extra adrenaline allows this sudden honesty that wouldn't necessarily happen in a social environment. And mm. then you see that people want to talk and lots of people have an experience that they thought was just their brain and mm -hmm. I, I felt Lucy that that you know very strong in, in Snowflake. It's that thing I think about labels and diagnoses is that there's this whole narrative that oh you want to over medicalize so that you can take your happy pills which are in quotes um because as we know they are not happy pills they are normal pills <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> they are don't kill yourself pills or they are don't have a panic attack pills but um mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it, it isn't like you say, it's not about having a diagnosis so that you can find the easy way out at all. It's about having a diagnosis so you can. And my husband's the same. He was 40 when he was diagnosed with ADHD. And my God, it saved our marriage. Just mm -hmm. knowing, 
just understanding one another. So, you know, mm. he doesn't take medication. Some people do, and that's good, and some people don't. He doesn't take medication, but he knows, he's learned about it, he's read about it, he understands himself. I understand him, so his relationships are, mm. you know, yeah, we, we still wind each other up a lot, but it makes such a difference. It's just that understanding, and I think that's what the book is is asking for. It's not asking us to make great sacrifices for people with mental health problems. It's just to stop, think, understand, and, you know, you can change the tiniest little thing in your, in your language, and it can stop somebody feeling so ashamed and isolated and, and harmed. So, you know, it's it's not asking much really in the bigger scheme of things it really isn't is it well snowflake is out uh now uh i was going to throw in because i know you've got a couple of records again saying something positive about social media i think both of us were uh in a tweet yesterday where someone was just asking about books because it was someone who had uh tried to to kill themselves on two occasions yeah. and was now going through it and the fact that someone could be that honest and just ask mm. about some 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 books uh and i'm going to just throw in i'm going to because you mentioned that thing about the male psychologist and uh female neuroticism pragya agarwal's uh hysterical oh, yeah. uh i would recommend that book uh veronica o'kane's the rag and bone shop uh she's a, a, a great writer i recommend that uh uh, as well as your book, Lucy, obviously, which we are uh, relentlessly, we will uh, be recommending. But what what else would you like to throw in there? Um, so I think I one of the ones I said was Matt Haig's Reason Stay Alive. It's the one that everyone kind of comes back to, but there's a reason for it. I just think so powerful. And he's such an amazing writer. Um, so, yeah, Reason Stay Alive by, by Matt Haig. I could list off hundreds of, of mental health books, but I think in that context, that was so inspiring and hopeful. Josie? You know, I, I got sent a really great book um, that I've just been sort of dipping into called Big Feelings. I can't remember who it's by. I can't look at my bookshelf. Um, oh, here we go, here we go, here we go, here we go. Big Feelings by Liz Fosleen and Molly West Duffy. And I've been reading this. It's been loads of fun. It's been great. Thank you very much. Josie Long is on tour now. By the time this goes yeah, out, she will be she'll be starting her tour. Lucy's book is out now. Uh, if you can support us uh, via Patreon, patreon.com slash bookshambles, that means that we can keep making as many of these uh, as possible and lots of other little projects that we're working on and documentaries and things like that. And uh, I'm off on a, a bibliomaniac tour of lots of independent bookshops and libraries. If you run a library, any kind of library, school library, public library, etc., uh, I'm trying to get out i'll just do a free free shows uh if you want a free show um about books um because i love libraries and uh hopefully i'll see you in one of the independent bookshops i'm going to thank you very much everyone that's lovely thank you so much for speaking to us lucy i really appreciate it thank cheers you. lucy thanks that was Josie and Robin's book shambles. Thank you very much to our producer, Trent Burton. Thank you to Josie Long and today's guest, who was Lucy Nickel. And remember, if you go to cosmicshambles.com, there is loads of other stuff there as well. We're always making things, and I hope you find something you like. Bye-bye.